Hey, welcome to Cross Creek On Demand. We are so glad you are here. My name is John. I'm the lead pastor. We created Cross Creek to be a church for people who don't normally go to church. And so we've designed our Sunday environment, including our online environment, to be a safe place where people can discover God's love for them. We would love to connect with you when you are ready. Go ahead and scroll down and you can click ask a question, ask for prayer. Maybe you could find out how you could get here on a Sunday evening to join us live. But we would love just to be a part of your journey in discovering God's love. When you're ready, we would love to see you in person. Until then, why don't you go ahead and click subscribe so you can be updated on Cross Creek's most recent messages. Thanks for joining us. Communities and people never stay the same. You are not who you were five years ago, and in five years you will not be who you are now. We are all in the process of becoming something different, something new. Often what we become just kind of happens as life goes on, but what if we had a goal and a target of who we wanted to be? What if we chose what our future selves would be like? What if we purposefully decided what our community will value and celebrate? Let's walk together and support each other as we all choose who we are becoming. Good evening. Good to see you guys. My name is John. I'm the lead pastor here and welcome we're glad that you guys are here. If you're watching online, thanks for watching online wherever you are, whenever you are. We're just glad to be seen. So thanks for joining us. I have a question for you. <clears throat> no, I don't. It's not a question. It's a statement. I'm going to start out by telling you something that is a fact. What you do is not as important as who you are. When your time comes at your funeral, do you want somebody to pull out your resume and say, well, when they were a teenager, they worked at Burger King for two years, and then, well, they went to school, and they, they got a job, and they were a secretary, and then, you know, they kind of moved up, became a manager. Is that how you want to be remembered? Or more for, man, they touched my life. You know, I am a different and better person because I met them, because I knew them. See, what really matters is not what you do, but who you are. And we're all becoming something. Often we become something on accident, right? We just, well, this is just who I am. Just going to have to deal with it. Take me or leave me, right? And we just kind of go through life, letting things happen, letting events, letting people shape us. But what if we actually purposely chose who we were going to become. We had a target of, you know, I want to work on this. I want to become this person. I want to be, you know, the person that's known for being supportive, for helping somebody become more than they, they thought they could be. I think that's what we all want, right? We all want that. And so we're starting a series. It's a five-week series called Becoming. Because I think we all want to become something. We are becoming something, but we want to become something more. And in fact, not just as individuals, but I think we all want something more for our community. What if we could choose what our community would be known for? What it would be like? The, the type of neighborhoods our kids could grow up in. And so we as Cross Creek, as a church, we have five core values. And we think these, we picked these five values because th these are who we want to become as a group of Jesus followers. It's who we think we could, our, our neighborhoods could become and thrive, and it's who we think uh, we as individuals could aspire to be and become something even more than we are now. So we have five values, and we're going to spend five weeks talking about these values in this series called Becoming. And so this week, we're going to talk about courageous faith. That is our first value that we have. And the reason I think it's important to talk about courageous faith is because the opposite of courage is, is giving in to fear, right? And there are so many things to be afraid of. So many things that try to, try to ruin your life with fear. Like for me, personally, a lot of things freak me out. In fact, your car is parked on one of them right now. We got our brand new, re-graveled and expanded parking lot. Isn't that awesome? Yes. 
It's not painted yet, so you probably were like, do I park here, do I not? It's fine, it's the Wild West, just park anywhere. And the cool part about that parking lot is it's 41% paid for. The scary thing is, it's 41% paid for. But we had to do it because it's, it's the summer. You can't do it when it's raining. You can't do it when it's too wet and all that. And so it just had to be done now. We had enough in the bank to, to in the savings to afford it. But as, as the guy kind of heading up the ship, that's a scary thing. That's a big bill. So that freaks me out a little bit. It's, it scares me. Uh, starting this church two years ago, it still scares me. I have three kids. They scare, not because like they're in charge, but because, you know, they're kids and they could get sick or make dumb decisions and who knows what could happen. So that freaks me out. Uh, one of my biggest fears used to be, um, was like my wife dying. Um, I had, I almost had cancer a while ago, almost because I had a mole that got taken off. <laughs> but I was telling everybody, I almost had cancer, I almost had, because, you know, I, I like the attention. <laughs> but it did freak me out a little bit. And I think we all have fears. You don't have to stand up here and, and, and tell them all. You could stand up and tell us, I'm just, don't do it. It's awkward. But we all have fears, you know, things that could happen. Things that might happen again. Things that, that won't happen. That, honestly, we can't do anything about there's things that could happen, might happen again, won't happen at all that we have no power over. And it's scary. You don't know the future, but you don't have a choice. You have to keep going into that unknown future. And I think our usual response with this, what usually we choose, we have two choices, is, you know, our response to fear is, I must or I can't. Those are our two usual responses to fear, you know, kind of like fight or flight. And I think all of us lean one way or the other. You know, some of us are fighters. Some of us are more, you know, let's, let's back off. That's, that's too much, I'm gonna go, go over here. We've all, ex- we lean one way or the other, but we've all experienced both when fear raises its head. We've experienced, I must, right? Fight back, you push to control your environment. Really, you're allowing fear to control you. You're acting out of control by trying to control everything, including things you know you can't control. Have you ever been there? Trying to control something you know you can't control, but it just, you, you, you must, I must control this. It can turn into, you know, you let that go long enough, you end up bullying people. You have constant stress and exhaustion. You really never live an, a, a joyful life, a life you enjoy. Because instead, you're feverishly trying to keep anything bad from ever, ha- ever happening to you. You don't even have time to enjoy the good because you're just working so hard to make sure the bad doesn't happen. So that's one side, I must. But then there's I can't. You allow the, the what ifs and the yeah buts to win, which you end up really doing nothing with your life, really never attempting to do anything. You allow fear to paralyze you. You know, you, you have, might not say it out loud, but this feeling of, it's too overwhelming. I can't control anything. If I try, I'm probably just going to fail, so why try? Let's just coast, not make any waves. You end up accomplishing nothing, making no difference, and basically just, just getting through each day. And again, you never really enjoy life because you're just waiting for the worst to happen. Well, you know, it's, it, things are good right now, but it's coming. I know it's coming, and I can't do anything about it. I mean, think about it. Think about this. Taking control and giving up are both rooted in fear. If you tend to take control of the situation, or you just usually give up and say, ah, it's too hard, both of those come out of a fear a fear that you, you can't control what's going on. And they both have the same end, a wasted life. But think about it. What else do I must and I can't have in common? 
It's not a hard one. I, oh hey, I, I must do this, or I can't do it. They both have I. See, fear comes from thinking everything relies on you. Fear comes from thinking everything relies on you. And, it, and here's why it's fearful, because you know you, and you're pretty cool, but you know you don't have it all figured out. You know you don't have it all together. Nobody knows that better than you if you're honest with yourself, and who wants to rely on that kind of person? See, if your future always relies on you, you'll eventually either fight for control or give up trying and just have a life of fear because you know you can't handle it. And so you overcompensate or you capitulate. That's a good rhyme. You either overcompensate or you capitulate. You can Google that word if you're like, I don't know about that one. But here's the thing. As the great Hubert, as the great professor Hubert J. Farnsworth would say, good news, everyone. There's another choice. Fear doesn't have to control us. Fear doesn't have to paralyze us. We can have peace and at the same time confidence to take risks and step into an unknown future that you don't and you can't Control. You can have peace and confidence with an unknown future. See, you can choose, I must. You can choose, I can't. Or you can choose, I trust. I must, I can't, or I trust. Choosing to trust something. Choosing to trust someone bigger than you. Someone bigger than your circumstance. And so tonight, what I want to do, I want to pose to you that the, the way to overcome fear and actually experience peace in every part of your life is trusting an ancient Jewish teacher. And here's what we're going to see. The amount of peace we experience depends on who we choose to trust. The amount of peace we experience depends on who we choose to trust. I know you're thinking it should be whom. Get over it. We're going to go with who today. You can write the M if you want. The amount of peace we experience depends on who we choose to trust. And so I want to show you why. I want to show you why that makes sense. We're going to look at a true story that happened in the life of Jesus. We find it in what we call the book of Mark. It's one of the, the gospels or the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life that we have recorded for us in the New Testament. The guy who wrote it, Mark, was a friend of the Apostle Peter. And so a lot of the times when you're reading this gospel, this book of Mark, this eyewitness account of Jesus' life, a lot of it is insights from one of Jesus' closest followers, the Apostle Peter. And it's probably out of the four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, this is probably the earliest. It was written around, written around 60 AD. So it's really just less than 30 years after the events happened. Meaning, when Mark was writing his account of Jesus' life, there were still eyewitnesses to Jesus' life eyewitnessing things. When he wrote this, there were still people alive who had seen the things Mark records about Jesus. So it's not just like hearsay. It's an actual eyewitness account. And he says, there's a lot of, we'll talk about it tonight, but there's times where he says, hey, go, go ask this person. You don't believe me? They're still alive. Go ask them. And so what we're going to see is a story about two people who have no control and how they dealt with their fear and how Jesus comes. And, well, well, we'll get to it. You'll see. You'll see. But Mark chapter 5, you can ha if you have a Bible, you can turn there. You don't need to. We have it on the screen for you. But let's see this story about trusting. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. 
One thing I just have to point out about the beginning of this story is that when you are reading these New Testament accounts and they name somebody with their proper name, Jairus, in this instance, that is the writer saying, I know this person. This person is still alive. This person is part of our community. If they name them, that's saying, go ask him about this. Isn't that cool? So you'll, see, you'll be reading these New Testament accounts of Jesus' life, and some people will be named, and some people will say, as we'll see later, like they say, a woman or a man. That means they know that story. They haven't talked to that person. This person, is, they actually talked to them and said, hey, what happened? Oh, okay. So anyway, that really doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about tonight. I just think it's really cool. So Jairus is one of the leaders of the synagogue in this town, which is, the town is uh, Capernaum. Pretty sure. I didn't write it in my notes, but yeah, Capernaum. And they've actually found the ancient remains of this synagogue that Jairus was a leader of, so that's pretty cool. Jesus had healed a guy in that synagogue. This city is where, uh, if you kind of followed the story of Jesus, uh, Jesus was teaching in a house that was totally packed, and these guys had a friend who couldn't walk, and they wanted to take him to Jesus. And so they went on the roof and dug a hole and lowered him down, all Mission Impossible style. That's the town. This is the town where that happened, all right? And this is maybe a few weeks or a few months, maybe, I don't know, a little bit after that happened. And so he actually, when that guy was lowered down, Jesus said, son, your, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders, maybe Jairus himself, were like, nobody can forgive sin except God, right? God is the ultimate judge. Only God can really forgive sin. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know. That's why I said your sins are forgiven. You get what I'm doing here? And he said, you know what, what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But, and he says, to prove that I have the power to forgive sins, to prove I'm God, get up and walk. And the guy starts walking and it's amazing, it's a great story, you should read your Bible, all that's in there. So that's the town, that's what we're talking about. And Jesus was, or Jairus was part of that group that wasn't really too cool with Jesus. But now he finds himself in a situation he has no control over. His daughter, his 12-year-old daughter that we'll see in a bit, is dying. In Luke's eyewitness account of Jesus' life, he tells us about the same story. And he, he gives us a little bit more detail that this is Jairus' only child, his only daughter, who is dying. Put yourself there. Think about it. This is 12 years. Some of you have 12-year-olds. I've had 12-year-olds. 12 years of love and care. You know, life, expectance, life expectancy wasn't that long. Once they kind of reached that age, you're like, okay, things will be okay. She's dying. This is the ancient world. There's no hospital. There's no blood test. There's what's wrong. I don't know. Let's go find Jesus. This man's worst fear has become reality, so he swallows his pride, and he falls at Jesus' feet and says, just come, heal my daughter. I saw what you did to those other people. You can heal my daughter. And so Jesus goes. He's got this whole crowd following him. But as he's going, something happens. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, we're talking about like 30 AD. Think of what kind of the medical community was like at 30 AD. And this woman had suffered under their care for 12 years. And she had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. She did everything she could to get better. She trusted these doc doctors and nothing got better, just got worse, and all she did was waste her money. And if that's not bad enough, the thing is, this is a Jewish community. And so when a, when a woman is, as it says, subject to bleeding, there, there's cleanliness rules in the Jewish community, in the Jewish religion about this. She was considered for 12 years ceremonially unclean. What that means is anything you touch is now unclean. Anywhere you sit is now unclean. Anyone you touch is now unclean. 
She wasn't allowed to be around people because she would make them ceremonially unclean. That's 12 years of, if you touch someone, they are unclean. That's 12 years of people avoiding you, 12 years of being isolated, of being an outcast, being lonely, 12 years of suffering under those doctors, out of money. She's desperate. And so what does she do? She makes her way through the crowd, probably with a hood on or something so people don't know who she is. It's not like a huge, you know, huge town. People know who people are. So she sneaks through this crowd. She says, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. If I just touch his clothes, maybe superstition, right? This is a holy man, so if I touch, you know, this holy relic type of thing, right, I'll be healed. Maybe it's some type of dependence on magic or something. You know, this is Jesus, even his clothes are magic. Maybe it's faith. We don't know. But it didn't matter. She, when the moment she touches his cloak, she's healed, completely healed. And here's what happens. Verse 30. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. What does that mean? What, it's, what is that like? I don't know. I don't know how Jesus knew power came out from him. We'll ask him someday. He turned around. And in the crowd asked, who touched my clothes? One thing about the power had gone out from him, it's showing that it's not magic, right? It's not the superstition, it's the power is in him. He possesses the power to heal. It says, who touched my clothes? And his disciples, you see the people crowding against you? Like, this, like you have all these people just crowding him, right? He can barely move. You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? That's like a celebrity coming out of the restaurant with all the paparazzi taking pictures and saying, who took my picture? Where is she? I know my picture was taken. Where is she? And they're like, what are you talking about? Everyone has touched you. And he said, no, this was different. But Jesus kept looking around to see. He wanted to see her. He knew who she was. He knew. He knew what had happened, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. See, why did Jesus ask that? Why didn't Jesus just let her kind of slip away, right? He knew she was healed. He knew who she was. He didn't want to just secretly heal her. If she was secretly healed, there's no proof. People could still consider her unclean. He wants the whole community to know this woman has been healed. Remember her, the ones that you guys told your kids not to even go near? Remember how you treated her? I've healed her. Not only that, he wanted a relationship with her. He wanted her to know that she was healed. He wanted wanted her to know that he knew her and saw her and loved her and healed her. So she knows she can't hide. And so she comes forward and says she comes forward trembling with fear feeling like she did something wrong, like she stole this power from him maybe. And so she admits everything. Here's Jesus' answer. He said to her, daughter, and it's the only recorded time we have Jesus calling somebody daughter, by the way. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed. That's a good word. Be freed from your suffering. Daughter, puts this relationship there. You are loved. You are not unclean, you are mine. Daughter, there's no need to fear. You don't need to be scared to tell me what happened. I already know. He says, your faith has healed you. Was it her faith in Jesus' clothes? Was it her knowledge of the law of God? Faith in what? Jesus, your faith in me has healed you. So here's the thing, maybe superstition led her to Jesus. Maybe, maybe that was her thing, you know, like, it, you know, he's holy, if I touch him, you know, I'll, and I turn around three times, I'll be healed. Maybe her superstition brought her to Jesus, 
but it was her choosing to put her trust in Jesus that healed her. She wasn't healed because of what she believed. She was healed because of who she trusted. Does that make sense? The point wasn't exactly that she had all the right facts about Jesus and who he was and what he could do and all that. That didn't matter. She was healed because of who she had put her trust in. See, faith is not about what you know, and it's not about what you believe. It's about who you choose to trust or whom you choose to trust. Faith is not about what you know, and really it's not about what you believe. It's about who you choose to trust. She chose to trust Jesus. And as awesome as that aspect is, awesome as this kind of side story of this woman is, we can't forget that Jairus is standing there the whole time. Jesus is walking to go heal his dying daughter, and he stops. You gotta, Jairus is probably already frustrated that all these people won't leave Jesus alone. Right? It's not easy to walk around with a group of people pressing in on you. They know where Jesus is going. They saw him come. Jairus was a well-known dude. They said, hey, his daughters, let's go watch. And them being there made it so Jesus couldn't walk faster. You've been in traffic when you want to get somewhere, right? Multiply that by a thousand. That's Jairus. And so Jesus getting there, but then he stops and he says, who touched me? And and Jairus probably didn't swear because he still wanted Jesus to heal his daughter. But maybe on the inside he did. He's like, are you kidding me? Who cares who touched you? Oh, it's her? Yeah, I know her. I'm the leader at the synagogue. She's not allowed in. She's unclean. She wants to be healed? That's nice. She's been wanting to be healed for 12 years. Another day will not make a difference. She can be healed tomorrow. She can be made clean tomorrow. My daughter is dying right now. And then, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Your worst fear has come true. She's dead. This whole crowd, this whole bothering Jesus, just leave him alone. It's pointless. Just think about what, if these people had just left Jesus alone, if this woman would have just been, stayed in her place, left him alone, he would have made it and she might have been healed. But she's dead. Right? The ultimate I can't. He has no control over this whatsoever. But the next thing we're going to see, the next thing we're going to read is one of the most profound things Jesus said. And I think it's the idea that all of this whole courageous faith hinges on. And when we read it, and you apply it to your situation, it's going to seem, I think, oversimplified if you really look at it. You'd be like, that's, that's it? But we're going to see how it's, how it's not, how it's really the most profound thing we can do. So what's Jesus say? Overhearing, and that can be translated as ignoring, which I prefer. Ignoring what they said, overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, told Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. It's like telling somebody not to think of a purple cat, right? Oh, you shouldn't feel that way. You ever been told that? That helps, doesn't it? Oh, I'm happy now, thanks. Don't be afraid. The translation could be, it's kind of an ongoing thing. Don't be fearing. Keep believing. Hold on to that feeling. Don't stop believing. <laughs> Making sure you're still here. He's saying, don't be afraid. Just believe. Stop fearing. Keep believing. You trusted me that I could heal your sick daughter who was dying when you came to me. 
Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. I'm still the same person. Don't let your fear take away your trust. And Jared's probably thinking, but it's over. Yet she was sick, and maybe you had the power to heal sickness, but she's dead. When you're dead, you're dead, and that's all you are. You are dead. That doesn't change. I'm sure Jairus had major doubts when Jesus said, don't fear, just believe. I mean, he understood natural human physiology that when you're dead, you're dead. But Jesus is telling Jairus to trust him, to believe him, to believe in him. See, faith is choosing to trust even in the midst of doubt. Faith is choosing to trust even in the midst of doubt. First thing is, faith is a choice. You choose it. It's not just something that happens to you and now you're like Mr. Holy and you can walk on water. Faith is a choice. And it's choosing to trust even in the midst of doubt. Am I saying that doubt is wrong? That questioning is not at all. Questions and doubts make your faith stronger if you have the courage to dig into them. I'm not talking about blind faith here. I'm talking about looking at the evidence of your situation and the evidence of who Jesus is, weighing them out and saying, who do you choose? Is my situation stronger than who Jesus is? And if, if you believe everything the New Testament writers, the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life believe, you're saying basically is this situation I'm in stronger or too hard for or too complicated for the one who created the universe and holds it all together right now. It's not blind faith. It's who are you choosing to trust? And so Jesus, Peter, who is the one helping Mark write this, James and John and Jairus and his wife go to Jairus' house. And when they get there, there's this loud commotion of people wailing and screaming and crying, which was tradition then. They would actually pay people to mourn when somebody died. And so she's been dead long enough for you know, the, the mourners to want to make their money, and so they get there and they start mourning for her because you know, if somebody's important, you are sad when they die, and so you, that was just part of the culture. So they're, they're, they're there, professional mourners, wailing and weeping. Basically, Jesus says, knock it off. She's just asleep. And they laugh at him. Like, usually not the wisest thing to laugh at Jesus. But they laugh at him. And they say, no, she's dead. See, these are professional mourners. They had seen a few dead people before. They knew dead. She was dead. But he says, knock it off. She's asleep. Which is how the first, the early church would describe death just sleeping, waiting to be resurrected. So they laugh at him because they knew she was dead. And so they go in. Jesus close three friends, the parents, and they go into this girl's room. He sends everybody out. He's like, you guys are annoying. You're wailing. You're not getting paid today. And here's what happens. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kum, which is Aramaic, by the way, which is a holdover from when the Assyrians conquered the area. Anyway, Talitha Kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Talitha Kum, I love that. Little girl, I say to you, get up. There's no magical incantation. There's no, Jesus, or Heavenly Father, please heal her. There's no, you know, making a potion, sorry, an essential oil and putting it on her <laughs> and making sure it all works, getting that salt lamp in the right spot. <laughs> None of that. All he does is say, I say to you, get up. See, the power is in him. Jesus has the power of life and death. He has the authority over life and death. I mean, who has the guts to say, hey, 
Her parents are there. If it doesn't work, it's going to be really uncomfortable. But what happens? Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. Isn't that funny? Of course she's walking around. She's 12 years old. She's got all this energy. She's alive now. It's great. At this, they were completely astonished. Out of their mind with amazement, he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about it, and because she was 12, told them to give her something to eat. She'd been through a lot. She was hungry. Completely out of their minds with amazement. Now at peace instead of mourning. And he says, don't tell anybody about this. Which if it were me, I'd be like, hey, did you guys get the shot of me doing that? Did you hear what I said? Do you want me to repeat it? When when they write the book, do you want me to sign it? But he says, don't tell anybody. See, he knew people would focus on the miracle and not what they represented. See, they represented who he actually was. If word got out, which it does anyway, if word gets out, people are just going to come to him for miracles and just want to see this miracle worker and see the sideshow and be like, oh, wow, what's he going to do next? Instead of actually hearing what he's saying and saying, God loves you so much that I am him. I have come to show you what this new life will look like. And I offer this to everyone. See, he was offering new life. He didn't want people to get distracted from that. Now, when we started, remember I said the amount of peace we experience depends on who we choose to trust. The amount of peace we experience depends on who we choose to trust. And Jairus could have had all of his trust in himself. He could have said, I must do something. And he does. He goes to Jesus. But he could say, I, you know, try to take care of the daughter himself. He's a synagogue leader. He knows how to pray. I just need to pray harder. I need to believe more. Maybe I need, to, I need to make extra sacrifices. He knew all the laws and the sacrifices to make to, for sick people. In the crowd, he could have just been pushing Jesus, like running behind him like a train, trying to push Jesus. So get your butt moving, Jesus. She's going to die. Quit talking to that lady. Or he could have, could have given in to the, I can't. It's impossible. She's dead. Let me go bury my daughter in peace. But instead, he chose to resist fear, and he chose, I trust. He chose to trust the only person who is completely trustworthy. And he ended up with a perfectly healthy daughter and being out of his mind with amazement. So really, what we need to kind of turn the ship a little bit and ask, who or what are you choosing to trust? We know who Jairus chose to trust. We know who the woman chose to trust. But who or what are you choosing to trust? When you look at everything you have to do, starting when you wake up tomorrow, everything that's still hanging over your head when you leave this building, when you start looking at everyone who depends on you, when you look at the uncertainty of the future you have to walk through even though you have no choice, do you say, I must, I can't, or I trust. Because Jesus says, I am for you. I proved it. I died for you. That means I'm for you. I love you. Just trust me. And if you're one of those that is thinking through what I'm saying here, you might say, yeah, but see... Jesus can heal. I'm, that's, you know, I believe eyewitnesses. I believe that happened. Jesus can heal. But what about my brother who had cancer? Jesus didn't heal him. So Jesus can heal and he chooses not to? How can I trust that? How can I trust him? I think that's a great question. I think those questions are what we need to be asking to actually discover who God is. And I think we have a choice in that situation. In that question, we have a choice. And it's blame or trust. They're both choices. Blame or trust. We can blame him for saying, you know, I'm for you. I'm God, so I'm all knowing. I'm all powerful. And yet I'm still choosing not to heal. We can blame him for that saying, well, then obviously you're not good. Obviously you don't love me. You're lying. You may be all powerful and all knowing, but you let people die. How can I trust you? So we can blame him, or we can trust him. We can trust that since he is 
for us, so much so that he died for us. Since he is all-knowing and all-powerful, yet he still lets things happen, he probably has a good reason for what he's doing that we might not know right now. I think that's a fair answer. We can blame or we can trust. But here's the thing. If we choose to trust, it's going to take practice because faith takes practice. It doesn't just zap you and now you're like, oh, Mr. and Mrs., I'm the man and woman of faith. Nothing phases me anymore. Faith takes practice. It's like a muscle. You have to exercise it. You have to keep using it. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. Because faith is not knowing a lot about God and religion. And it's not something that just temporarily happens when you need it. You know, I'm in this situation and now, God, I trust you. And it's not just sticking your head in the sand. It's not blind faith. The courageous faith that we're talking about, courageous faith, this value that we, are, that we, we, we want to instill in our church and in people and in our neighborhoods, is choosing to trust that Jesus is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. Courageous faith is trusting that Jesus is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. You might say, yeah, but this whole faith thing, this is what I wrestle with. This is why I'm, you know, kind of here checking things out, why I'm watching online. That whole, I was told, you know, oh, I have a doubt. Well, you just need more faith. That's not faith. That's sticking your head in the sand. That's not asking the questions. But you use faith every day. You're using it right now, right? You are choosing to trust that chair is not going to fall apart. You'd be super embarrassed if it did, yet you're trusting that chair. Did you think about it? No. Unless it's happened to you before, and now you always think about it. But you are choosing to trust your chair. You do it every day. You're choosing to trust that that car is not going to swerve into your lane. You have good practice choosing to trust. So what step are you being asked to take? Well, step of trust. Maybe it's just willing, being willing to be open to the idea that a loving God exists. Maybe that's just the step, the little step you need to take right now. Being open to that idea that a loving God exists and loves you. Maybe, this one's hard for me, maybe it's trusting that God knows what's best for you even when you disagree with him. Trusting that God knows what's best for you, even when you disagree with him. Whether it's something he said, this is the best way to live, or something you say, you know, I I really want this to happen in my life, and he says no. Maybe it's choosing to trust him with that, even when you disagree. And it's okay to tell him you disagree. He can handle it. Maybe it's choosing not to freak out because you can't see the end of the tunnel, but choosing to trust him with every little step you need to take to get on that journey. Maybe it's choosing to trust that Jesus is who he said he is. He is God. He is the Savior of the world. He is the way to the Father. And he will do what he said he will do, that if you simply choose to trust him with your life, not trusting doing a bunch of good things, not trying to make your good outweigh your bad, but just choosing to trust him, he will give you a perfect relationship with your heavenly Father. He will wipe your slate clean, of what the Bible calls sin, of choosing to hurt other people, of choosing to put yourself above other people. Maybe that's it. Maybe you have made that choice, and your next step of trust is getting baptized. A way of showing the world that you are now a follower of Jesus, that you have chosen to put your trust in him, and doing a symbolic way for everyone you know and for the community to know you are a Jesus follower, and that is what you are committing to. You could sign up for baptism on on your connect card if you wanted to, or online. So who will you choose to trust? And, you know, we'll say, oh yeah, Jesus, Jesus is great, but, you know, I love Jesus, but I need to do this and that and that to make God happy with me. Is that trusting Jesus? No. See, that's, that's trusting Jesus and you, right? I'll go sideways. See, I'm, I'm kind of trusting this stool, but I'm not trusting it. You know, it, it could break, so I need to trust my, my strong quads here right? Massive quads. What's really trusting? I can't do anything. I am fully trusting Jesus. 
But that's too simple. Just trusting him, that's too easy. Isn't it? Isn't it great? It's not that complicated. And so I, w- I, want, you, I want you to try this for three days. I've been trying it for a few more, and it takes work. Try this. See, when I must and I can't fight for control of you, when I must and I can't fight for control, choose I trust. For three days. Choose I trust. So what would that look like? Well, right now we're trying to sell our house because there's a house we want to buy, but we can't buy it unless we sell this house. But the timeline is counting because they accepted our offer. But if this house doesn't sell, we're stuck which isn't really anything to complain about. It's a great house, but it doesn't have a yard, and I got three kids who are driving us crazy. And so I can freak out about it, or I can purposely just stop and say, Jesus, help me trust you. Not, Jesus, I trust you, because you know what? I'm not fully trusting, and I can be honest about that. Help me trust you. Help me trust you. And when that fear comes, you say, nope, I'm trusting. I am choosing to trust just for three days. In three days, you can freak out all you want it, okay? Try it for three days. It's not going to hurt anything. But think about it. What would a year of not having to worry look like for you? That would be a great year. A year of not having to worry that no matter what situation you were in, you knew Jesus was in it with you, you knew that he was for you, and you knew that he could be trusted Sounds almost too good to be true, but it can happen. What would our community look like if we chose to have courageous faith? If that, you know, instead of just jumping to conclusions all the time or knee-jerk reactions to something somebody says or does, you said, you know what? I trust that there is someone bigger in charge, bigger than myself, even bigger than my government. I trust that somebody is in charge that loves us and cares for us and wants us to love others. What would our community look like? What would Twitter look like? It'd be fun again. Just go back to being, oh, you had that for lunch. Awesome, thanks for tweeting. Three of you use Twitter, right? It's okay. What if we as a church, and when I say church, I'm talking about a movement of people discovering what it means to follow Jesus together. What if we as that type of group of discovering what it means to be loved by Jesus had the courageous faith to trust Jesus with what we need and chose to love our neighbors as Jesus loves us? What if there's no like, yeah, but you know, I want this and I might not be able to do that. Or, you know, my time is, and I can't really help that. What if we just chose to trust that Jesus has it all under control and he just wants us to love others? What would that be like? I think if we had this courageous faith, just ourselves and our families and our communities, I think families would start to heal. You don't have to control your relationship. You just have to love. You just get to love Jesus is in control. You don't have to nitpick everything your kid does because Jesus loves them more than you do. He calls them daughter. He calls them son. He loves them. You can trust. I think families would heal. Neighborhoods would be different. Schools would be safe places to go where kids could be trained in the math, arithmetic, and whatever goes on in schools. I haven't been there for a while. Here's the thing. Courageous faith is the first step in becoming what we were always meant to be. It's the the gate that opens up everything else. It's that first, sometimes just that little step. Sometimes it's a huge step that seems monumental until you take it, and you're like, oh, that that was easy. It is that simple, it is. But it's the first step in becoming who we were always meant to be. Try it for three days. And then what happens after that is between you and God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you do love us, that you are for us, and that you are completely trustworthy. Help us in our doubt 
First, give us the courage to admit our doubts, and then give us the courage to trust you with them. Give us the courage to say, I am choosing to trust. I am putting all of my weight on you. Thank you for being able to take that weight. Thank you for being trustworthy and being faithful. Show us who you are this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you so much for being here. I hope you enjoyed the working AC. Isn't that great? If, yeah. If you have a kid in elementary, in the elementary class, you will be uh, picking them up, checking them out, out on the, you'll go downstairs where you dropped them off, you'll go out to the uh, basketball court. They'll be out there because they have been prepping for our side dish Sunday, which you are all invited to attend, whether you knew we were having it, whether you brought something or not. Is there a thing? See, side dish Sunday today after our service. It's, it's like a potluck. Come hang out, come eat food, come talk to people. It'll be great, but pick up your kids first. If you have a kid in the nursery or the preschool, they'll be right where you dropped them off, okay? Have a great week. Thanks for being here.